The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in December 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome a man who has more Oscars than any living person. Eight Oscars for Alan Menken, who looks a little bit embarrassed as I say that. Well, (laughs) (laughs) just a little bit. (laughs) Alan Menken, of course, known for his uh, film work, uh, scores for movies including The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Newsies, Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules, and Home on the Range. Known in Broadway terms, of course, for Beauty and the Beast and now the new show from Disney, the Little Mermaid, also Little Shop of Horrors, and some shows that may not be as familiar to listeners like King David, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, Real Life Funnies, and several others we'll be getting into during the next hour. But first, welcome Alan Menken. Thank you. The Little Mermaid was a film for Disney. Now it's on Broadway. It will open officially open in uh, January, opening being delayed by the stagehand strike. Right. And you and Howard Ashman had written the score originally for the movie version, and now there's 10 new songs you've written. How d- was the move from film to Broadway for you? What special challenges did that uh, present, other than, of course, writing 10 new songs? Yeah. Um, well, you're opening up a classic that everyone is so invested in. It has s- such huge pluses and huge minuses. Um, the pluses are you know you have your tent poles already established. Now you just got to see what's the, what's the rest of the shape and and how do you fill it out. And th- those moments, for me, tend to be pretty clear. Wh- wh- when it, same thing with Beauty and the Beast, um, because those those big moments were already established by by Howard and me uh, when um, Tim came in on Beauty and Glenn Slater came in on on Mermaid. Those moments were were easy to find. The um, the biggest challenge, I guess, is having the audience not feel violated by where you take the show because they're so invested. And on the other hand, not have the audience uh, on the other side say, well, why didn't you take it further? I mean, certainly everybody is being so familiar and invested in it is going to have some opinion about what you should have done, what you could have done. And one of the things we wanted to do was certainly make the love story more dimensional, give Prince Eric much more of a profile as a a human being and as, as a man who's really in love with this young woman. And give him a song moment, and 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 everything in the show is affected by how you how you deepen the story. You know, giving a number to two numbers to uh, to Scuttle, the, the seagull, that that kind of vaudeville color. You know, finding the colors that feel like are implied between the other colors in, in the movie. Well, of course, the audience has expectations from the film. So when you then do it as a Broadway show, do you have to change any of the existing material to meet the demands of a live performance on stage? Well, the first thing I try to do um, is say, is, was there any material that Howard and I wrote that could now be put back in? In the case of Little Mermaid, there was very little. Um, and essentially what we had to pull on was um, Fathoms Below, where we had written a fuller Fathoms Below first time around. And there was a couple words we got for Under the Sea. I remember um, going back to my files. And we were doing a little expansion for Stephen Mears. There was a little, a couple, uh, four extra bars of choreography. I said, well, let me find a couple more, you know, lines of Howard's. So, I mean, that's, there, there, I have an agenda there to try to, try to expand in that way. Um, what was the rest of the... I'm sorry. Well, just... Was there anything, any major changes to existing materials? No, uh, very know. little. No, again, we expanded Les Poissons to, to be a bigger moment. But there it was pretty neat. We were able to leave How- the first part of the song pretty much intact in terms of what Howard wrote, and then Glenn Slater wrote the second half. Uh, there's a couple small lyric changes within songs where, where, it's, where it was necessitated by plot. 
I mean, Howard was a really meticulous musical theater writer, and there wasn't much improvement necessary in what he originally did for the film. For you, going back to this material you just mentioned, you looked in your files, you had a group of songs that were written now well over 15 years ago, probably longer, and then you are coming up with songs that are meant to be of a piece with them. Is there a challenge to, to finding that same style well, again? Well, luckily, since I wrote the underscore for Little Mermaid, and, and, and as with Beauty, the same thing, I, I could draw on what I had already composed for the underscore thematically. So I had a, a scuttle theme. Um, and I used that to, to, you know, to inform some of the score. I had some... Um, some themes for Flotsam and Jetsam in the movie that, that I was able to... Um, Poor child, sweet child. That actually comes right from the underscore of, of the movie. So wherever possible, again, I want it to be a familiar experience for those who love the movie. I'd like you to almost walk out going, oh, was that a song in the movie? Because it, it feels like it was. And then you go oh, to be surprised that it wasn't in the movie or vice versa. Um, something felt fresh, but it felt of a piece. And you know, to to break down the distinctions between the movie experience and the stage experience. And in terms of working with a different lyricist, it's not the first time, unfortunately, that you've you've had to do additional material for uh, a project after Howard Ashman yeah. passed away. Certainly, that happened with Aladdin, but with Glenn Slater now. Did you have to find a way for him to match what? Ashman's lyrics were like? Was that a concern? Well, not really. When I, when I decided to start working with Glenn, um, one of the things that drew me to him was that I sensed a similar quality in him uh, to Howard Ashman. A classic quality as a lyricist, an intelligence, and a um, uh, total understanding of dramaturgical needs. And it just felt, you know, on a gut level, it felt right. And I've always been drawn the lyricist, obviously, who um, can, can create a, a common thread between the spoken and the, and the dialogue. So, no, I wasn't terribly concerned about that. It, in every case, um, he's been incredibly respectful of Howard's primacy and, and Howard's vocabulary. And, and where there are seams, I defy people to say where one starts and the other leaves off. Well, did you write certain of the new songs because of demands of the book or because of the Broadway, the theater medium being different than film? For example, in film, there's no intermission. The film goes from beginning to end. Right. In a theater, there is an intermission. People leave for 15, 20 minutes, they come back. Right. You wrote a very cute new song called Positivity. That opens Act Two. That opens Act Two to get the audience back in. Yeah, in a, in a way, that I guess that, that did conform to the, to, to the need of, of opening Act Two, certainly. The end of Act One was a slam dunk. That was right there. You know, you have poor unfortunate souls, and 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 the incantation by Ursula, and then and then Ariel is has legs and can't breathe underwater, and she's fighting her way to the surface, and she breaks the surface, and you go, that's the end of Act One. And the curtain comes down. Yeah. What more could you ask for? If someone had said instead of going, you know, to stage, we're going to adapt this um, as a film musical, live action film musical, would would you have made different choices? And I'd say not. Not too many, because the form of the musical is, isn't really confined to the stage. It really has to do with you know, how you set, t- tell a story and create a dramatic arc using songs. And um, 
I would say that even within a movie, there's an implied act break. Um, it may not be sung in, as it is in the theater, but for the most part, the challenges are pretty similar. Well, positivity served the need of getting the audience back into the mood, getting them back into the theater, mm-hmm. basically. Uh, did that also grow out of the character of the Seagulls and Scuttle in particular? Because it's a great little song and dance number. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, Buddy Hackett played um, Scuttle in, in, the, uh, in the movie, so it was... It already, I already had a, a sort of a song and dance band kind of mentality about the character. And now it's Eddie Corbett, who's a terrific yeah. dancer. Yeah, um, I always saw Scuttle, you know, you, Ariel, hey, kid, you know, you're really feeling that kind of, you know, song and dance guy. And so you, you, know, you want to go right into something like this. Oh, look at me, you see this face. In terms of beauty, I'm a basket case. And as for style and savoir faire, well, I guess there ain't a whole lot there. Should I keep going? No, well, well, that does make no sense. I strut my stuff with lots of confidence. Cause now I lack an awful lot. There is one thing I got. I got positivity. I got positivity. It give me the zam and the zow and the yaddle, yaddle, yaddle. That's why I walk with a wiggle in my waddle. Cause once you know that word, there ain't nothing you can do. So let that positivity work for you. You commented before that people probably come in with expectations because, of course, the film is beloved now already by, depending on how you define them, probably a couple of generations already. Um, You did an out-of-town tryout. The show ran over the summer in Denver. And I'm wondering what you learned in that first experience of putting it on stage and whether that resulted in changes for yeah. what's happened here in New York. I think the biggest yeah, the biggest challenge throughout was was the ending. You know, and we should start off by saying the the ending of the movie was no great prize. I mean the the whole, you know, driving a ship through Ursula it wasn't exactly it, it, mermaid's finest hour. <laughs> it was just it was just a utility and the whole plot um, aspect of of Vanessa coming on shore and there being this separate character who's embodying um, Ariel's voice, again, was a utility for the film, and I always felt it could be improved on. So there you're, you're dealing with audiences going, what, have, what happened to that, or what happened to the... And you go, well, it, it really needed to be you know, adjusted anyway, and, and there are simply better ways to do it on stage. And I, we didn't have the ending right in, uh, in Denver, there was, you know, we had to create certain kinds of accommodations because of the needs of the set. Going, when you're on land and going back underwater and back to land, and she's a, and she's got legs and she's back to being a mermaid and she's got legs again. And uh, we were trying some sh- shortcuts in Denver that really were, compromised uh, uh, the, uh, the dramatic too much and kind of strained credulity too much. And we found ways to do an ending that was much more satisfying here in New York. I mean, the other things in Denver that were, they were just little trims and um, adjustments in songs and staging issues, you know, what you can do under the sea and what you can't do under the sea, you know, can they only glide under the sea or how about, can we, can't we do some hoofing under, under the water and where does it feel like a violation, where does it not feel like a violation? In the writing, was always the challenge of, okay, Ariel cannot speak in Act 2. Is she going to actually remain silent for the entirety of Act 2? Or can we have her, you know, sing her thoughts and feelings? And how, to what extent can we do that without, without violating the sense of her silence? 
One of the things that must be a great challenge is in animation, presumably, you can do whatever you want. Anything can be drawn, whatever the creative impulse may be. Is there a challenge to the literalness of the stage, even though there can be imagination on the stage as well? Yeah, I think there is. And the look of the of the show is not literal. The look, the look of the show is very, is very, it's very much about light, and the, the light of, of being on land, the light of being under the sea, this, this sense of fluidity under the water. And while we were in Denver, the, it, this is so technologically complex. This show that I, I, we never, we were continually saying, "Well, this doesn't look right." She said, "You're not seeing what it's going to be." Because it was, it was the set was built in stages where it was you were getting X percent, you know, early in Denver, X plus whatever, you know, later in Denver, and even in previous here in New York, it wasn't the whole thing. And and it's only now that that the whole concept is finally showing up on stage, and it's great. But it it really took about four or five months of of the show from rehearsal through out of town to now to have all of those elements ready and built and and um, and. And, and still, we have occasional, well, here in previews, occasional um, train wrecks technologically, which always happen in shows, that are being uh, smoothed out. But now the show very much has <coughs> the feeling of being underwater between the, the scenery, but also the actors on, I guess, rollerblades or some wheelies, sort. Just kind called. of What I call wheelies? Wheelies, I think. Yeah, yeah they just kind of glide across. Uh, yeah, I love watching yeah, that. It's wonderful. I really do. And, you know, in the beginning, it would be like, you know, the brakes were a little hard to, you know, <laughs> you know, and they kind of stop. Now they really have learned how to how to glide gracefully with those wheelies. And, and the, the costumes, the uh, the mermaid's tails were fantastic. Yeah, and those went through an evolution also. Um, in, in Denver, they were kind of stiffer, and then they and now they have a, oh, kind of a life of their own. They certainly do. Yeah. Don't ask me how they do it. <laughs> well, you mentioned before that the character of Prince uh, Eric has been given a little bit more depth and a little bit more humanity, and he's also been given a couple songs. Yes, he's called her voice, which he comes to the edge of the of the ocean and and he sings about this girl. Well, let me say this about it. You, you know, when when I wrote the, the first thing I ever wrote for um, Little Mermaid, I wanted to capture this sense of un- being under the water. So this moving figure and Prince Eric's song uh, starts with a similar moving figure now am I going to remember the words I can feel her laughter in the I'm sorry I would have brought lyrics with me but um it's, it's, and it opens up into this big chorus about her voice. And it's actually, that's one of the numbers that we're still finessing and orchestrally and, and, and structurally. It's a big moment for him. Um, and, it, and it really deepens the sense of his, his longing for this, for this girl and his passion for her. And Ursula, who is a deliciously wicked character, has some wonderful songs that she, Renee Scott, gets to sing in the show. Right. Um, she has a song called I Want the Good Times Back. Um, it's all about about how she she wants those delicious days when she ruled under the sea back. You know, and so it's a, it's this moment where Ursula and and the eels are um, 
are plotting what they're going to be, um, how, the, how they're going to regain the, their power. And, of course, the, they're going to regain their power through um, getting to, to Ariel. And, um, and there was a balance. You know, the, the, the moment in the movie was, I'm wasting away. And for years we had this the song we had written for Ursula called Wasting Away, um, which, again, was very Brecht and violent as feel and, and very much about uh, the double entendre of her weight and, um, and also how, how she's just laying in wait until she can regain her power. And everyone felt we needed something more plot-driven early in the show t- uh, for Ursula. So that was, a, that was a number that went through some evolution through the last, like, five years of process, which actually has been, like, I think over six years since, since we began work on Little Mermaid. And as you mentioned, uh, Ursula also gets to close the first act with this song that you... Poor Unfortunate Soul. Well, Sherry, Sherry Renee Scott is, you know, first of all, casting Sherry Renee was um, an incredible decision because she's not ne- necessarily what you'd think of as Ursula. But when you see her on stage, she just brings this this electricity to Ursula. Of course, the, the eels provide literal electricity. But I've never seen a uh, performer you know, spend so much time reaching the back wall of the theater and completely enveloping an entire audience in what she does. It's pretty extraordinary. You just put the song in her hands and step back, and, and she's going to do what she does with it. You commented that it's been five or six years that you've been working on this. And, of course, you had an unfortunate hiatus in the development here in the past few weeks with, with the strike. You're still, after five or six years, after an interrupted preview process, you're still tweaking? Yeah, well, I think what happens is the most effective work on a show really happens in front of an audience. It's, you know, it's like when you invite people over to your house, you think everything's fine, and then when they walk in, you go, oh, God, that picture's really ugly, <laughs> you know? Um, because you're all of a sudden in your mind's eye seeing it through through other people's eyes, or and in the case of an audience, you're actually looking at how they react. And so, yeah, work the most effective work happens number one with an audience, whether it's in a reading or um, a presentation or an out of town, or certainly on Broadway, you're gonna, it's going to be the most intense microscope you have is our Broadway previews, and that work's going to continue right up right up to the opening. And the closer you get to the opening. I'm, you know, your, your vision becomes more focused as you close in on that moment called, you know, freezing the show. That's, uh, you definitely want to get in your, your two bits fast. Well, from closing in on the opening of your newest Broadway show, I'd like to go back and ask you, how did you get your start as a songwriter and as a musical theater writer? As a songwriter, I, I grew up in a family that loved musical theater and, and loves musical theater. I'm blessed. In fact, both of my parents are still alive and well, and my dad still sits at the piano and takes out his Rogers and the Heart songbook. Or, but your dad's a dentist, we should say. He is a dentist. And, well, yes, the famous story of the, the Mencken dentists, which, of course, is relevant around the time of Little Shop. And my mother's an actress. She was professional, actually studied with Sanford Meisner when she was young, she married my dad, and, and of course, most of her, her creative output has been local to Westchester since. Um, but that's a lot of where my, my creative juices come from is you know, genetic. Um, and it goes back to my, to my grandparents, too. It's various. Anyway, I, I digress. When I grew up, I actually wanted to be a serious composer. And, and actually, I, you know, I think I can date it back in certain ways to the influence of Fantasia. When you, the wedding of... Uh, both you know classical music and, and these images, it's it's hard to really put my finger on it. But 
it's curious to me that my first, my favorite piece of music when I was a kid was um, Beethoven's Sixth. I go, why the Sixth? Oh, maybe it was Fantasia. So a lot of those influences got planted pretty early. And, and then, of course, you know, starting in 1963, when both puberty hit and the Beatles hit, we all shifted An our focus. An unbeatable combination. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It, 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 um, and um, we all wanted to be songwriters. We all wanted to play guitar and, and play in bands. And I, I dutifully did, did all of that. But then when I went to college, I went to college uh, as a pre-med. And, you know, it took very, very little time for me to figure out that I did not want to pursue a career in medicine or pretty much anything except music. But I didn't think I could do that. And I had spent my whole childhood avoiding practicing. That's how I really began composing is I, I hated to practice. So I'd sit at the piano and when I, as soon as my parents would leave the room, I'd be working on a Beethoven sonata and I'd just start writing my own Beethoven sonata. And I'd, be, I'd just fake it for an hour. And they'd come in and then they, they, my, my piano teacher would question them. What, Alan doesn't seem to be making much progress on the piece. Is he practicing? He said, well, he plays for an hour. But I, 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 it's, I assume he's practicing. And then they conf- she, my piano teacher confronted me and I said, well, I kind of make up my own for an hour. She said, well, show me. And she was <laughs> very encouraging from that point on. It was Emily Harris. She taught at uh, Manhattan School of Music, or Manus, sorry, Manus School of Music. And um, she encouraged me to be a composer. When I you know, got to college and said, you know, this is not for me to be a, doc- uh, a, a doctor or a dentist, I began writing songs. And I joined something called the, uh, the, the BMI Musical Theater Workshop, with, and it was run by the great conductor, Lehman Engel. And I did that basically to appease my parents. A friend of the family was a member of the workshop and recommended me, and I... I went in to meet with Lehman Engel, this wonderful cherubic man. If you ever met Lehman, he was the most delightful man and, and so knowledgeable and so full of stories and somewhere between a Buddha and a pixie. Um, and he was a conductor, he a was Broadway a conductor. conductor. If you look at your old cast, you know, cast albums going back to the 40s and 50s, you'll see Lehman Engel's name prominently in, uh, among them. And I went in with hair down my back and some torn jeans and and my hippie regalia. And I thought that I played some incoherent song for Lehman. I don't know. I, was, I think it was called Crab's Lament. It was from it was a rock ballet I think I was working on. And Lehman said to me, well, I can tell you you're in. I said, oh, great. Okay, thank you. And I walked out. And I found out years later, Lehman didn't do that. Mm. You know, you had, people had long waits before they were let know they were in. So Lehman was just this great believer in my talent and was a great supporter. And I went into that workshop. First person I met was this... Uh, this, this graduate student named Maury Yeston, um, a Yale graduate student, and we became fast friends and met Ed Kleban there, and Lynn Ahrens uh, joined the workshop later. Actually, I, after Lehman passed away, I was one of the people who auditioned her to join the workshop. But so many people passed through that great workshop. And what did the workshop do for you? What, the workshop what did you was designed, do at the workshop? It was designed to take writers who had not worked in musical theater um, and teach them the fundamentals of writing a musical. And Lehman would, was a primer on, you know, what is a musical? Where did the songs go? How do, how do you pick a story to, to dramatize? What are the elements? Where, how did the songs relate to the arc? What are those, those prime moments? And here are moments. Everybody do this assignment. Everybody do that assignment. A scene from Picnic, a scene from Bus Stop. 
I wish I could find the songs I wrote for those because they were good. But it's, it's been so long, and they're lost somewhere in my files. And it was te- it's kind of, te- of a terrifying place because you were there among your peers, and each of you doing the same assignment, and pretty much getting torn to shreds. But I found in that room... Uh, let, let me backtrack a bit. I'm, I'm sorry to be so scattered about this. When I left college, not only did I join the workshop, I also had to make a living. And I said, well, I, 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 you know, I play classical music, and I certainly improvise. So I started playing for ballet classes, and I became pretty popular at, and well-employed as a, as a, as a, pian, a pianist who played ballet and, and dance classes. I also had written a rock ballet for the downtown ballet company called Children of the World. And... The most notable thing that happened from that was one day this beautiful ballet dancer walked in who is, I've now been married to for, well, I've been together with for 36 years, Janice. And I really, I wanted to be a, a recording artist and a pop star. And uh, when I left college, I thought that's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to be <clears throat> Billy Joel and Elton John and Jackson Brown. And, and I found through musical theater a more compelling medium for me. I was still able to use my my sense of pop music, my sense of writing accessibly something that would work in the pop marketplace. And at the same time, I found that I had an ability as a chameleon to incorporate other styles and thread them into what I did as a, as a songwriter, a pure songwriter. And I learned through Lehman how to, um, how to work that within the context of a musical. Um, and so in those years, I began... To, I wrote a, a musical adaptation of um, Midnight, the uh, Don Amici and Claudette, uh, the Billy Wilder film, Midnight. The, and um, I wrote... The, these were the ones that Lehman liked. Before that, there was some pretty misguided... I remember the first, the first sh- um, show I had showcased was a musical of Sid Arthur called For Mad Men Only. And we would have a showcase every year at the Edison Theater, and, and Lehman would set up the songs, and he said... And now we will have a song, a light, a light, um, I forget how, how Layman put it, a light uh, song for our character Sid Arthur as he searches his way. And the audience kind of tittered. And Layman said, that's the last laugh you're getting in this one, folks. Or he got panned before, I, before it was even presented on stage. And Layman could be tough. But I gradually learned to, to choose the right material. And Midnight was was, I think, the first successful material I had chosen there. And then I did a musical of the Jules Pfeiffer novel, Harry the Rat with Women. And then came the day when Maury called, Maury Essen called me and said, there's this guy, Howard Ashman, who's the artistic director of WPA Theater, and he's looking for a composer. And, and Lehman also recommended that I meet with, with um, Howard because Lehman was on the board of advisors of WPA Theater. And so Howard, who was meeting with many different composers around New York, came and met with me. And at that time, I was exclusively a composer-lyricist. I was doing both. And in fact, if you get Lehman has a book called Their Words Are Music, and it has all these pages of the young, up-and-coming lyricists. And my lyrics are in there, but there's not much lyric output for me after that because once I started working with Howard, again, I found it just more rewarding to work with somebody who could really thread seamlessly between, between the, the language of the book and the language of the lyric and... I, I was very, very happy and satisfied taking my abilities as a lyricist and using it as a collaborator to someone like Howard. So what did you go to work on with Howard Ashman? He came with this, this Kurt Vonnegut novel, and I was a big Vonnegut fan. We all were and are. Um, I think I'd just read uh, Red Cat's Cradle, and it was God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. 
and um, not seemingly the most natural source for a for a music piece of musical theater. Well, that was what was great about Howard was he did find these these unusual pieces that that called for an unusual vocabulary, and um, you know it's a story of this this eccentric man who's running the Rosewater Foundation. His dad is a senator and is, and is a uh, uh, Rosewater County and, uh, and Rosewater Township back in Indiana, named after the family. And unfortunately, Elliot's going to going to inherit all of the money, but everyone considers Elliot crazy. And they fight Elliot rec- in receiving the money. And Elliot goes to Rosewater County and, is, and eventually spreads the money out among all the people in, in Rosewater County, kind of a socialist manifesto, but it's a delightful story. And... Um, Harrah and I wrote our first score, and it's very well reviewed by, by the New York Times, and it was, it was very welcomed. It had a couple of things going against it. It was very much an off-Broadway sensibility, but it had a Broadway-sized cast, um, and so it, it only ran for four months. Um, we ran uh, first at, at the WPA Theater in an equity showcase, which is how we did things in those days. Um, and as you may know, an equity showcase is a situation where you basically you rehearse for four weeks. You put the show up. Um, you can do it for almost nothing, but it has to be reviewed. You have, you have no way around it because, because it provides the, um, the cast an opportunity to be seen um, and, and commented on by the critics, and that's important. So it's kind of a do or die because you're basically being reviewed in New York, and if you're not ready, that could be the end of it. Um, and we were glowingly reviewed, and Howard and I were discovered, in quotes, and then moved to the Intermediate Theater on 14th Street, where we weren't able to run. It was a big house, um, but it's just the wrong size show for for Off-Broadway. And he said, you know what? I have an idea for a show. It, w- it will work Off-Broadway, and it will show people that we're ready to write our big Broadway show. And um, the idea was um, an adaptation of the Roger Corman film, uh, Little Shop of the Little Shop of Horrors, which we took the off, it just became Little Shop of Horrors, and we took a couple stabs at that. The first stab had nothing to do with what we ended up doing. It was very much in the style of the movie. The plant had a song: "Feed, feed me, I'm hungry. Feed me, I'm starving. Feed me, I'm fading and fast. Feed me." It was very much in that voice that Corman had in the movie for the little plant. Or we had a song, um, When it's time to pick a pet flower, who's the shrub we love? Who's our potted plant of the hour? Who's our bush when bush comes to shove? Who rakes in that cast? Those kudos. Look, ma, who came through? Not Audrey Hepburn or Audrey Wood. The both those ladies are well and good. The dismal failures beside the wonderful Audrey, too. And the little pods open and go, Audrey, 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 too. We, we would present the show for people in its early stages, and they would look at us like we had four heads. And then one day Howard came in and said, you know, I have an idea. I think we should write this show as the dark side of Greece. You know, and basically it's, it, it's a combination of bubblegum rock and roll and Phil Spector um, rock and roll, kind of with that, that end-of-the-world connotation that those, that those B-horror movies had in the early 60s, the early, late 50s and early 60s. And, um, and th- that it all came together, you know, once you open a show with... Little shop, little shop of horrors, very bubblegum, 
very light, and at the same time, you're, you're basically singing about blood and, and murder. And it was just these, these I had instant confidence that, that we had just a, arrived at a great, a great way to tell the story. And it, it um, yes, and one interesting side note was we couldn't figure out, you know, somehow at the end of Act One, Seymour had to commit the first murder. In the movie, Seymour actually throw. It just happens to throw a bottle. It happens to hit a bum. The bum happens to die, and he cuts the body up and feeds it to Audrey too, who's now growing uncontrollably. How are we going to do this on stage? It can't be an accident. But Seymour can't go out and shoot somebody. It's, he's our protagonist, and he's. We love him. He's he's in, he's innocence in, in itself, um, and he's he's basically you know motivated by his love of Audrey, Audrey one that is. And so I said, well, you know, I have an idea. He goes to the dentist, and, you know, my dad is, pr- is president of the New York chapter of the American Analgesia Society. He uses, you know, nitrous oxide. And how about, what if our dentist uses nitrous oxide and, and overdoses, laughs himself to death on nitrous oxide? All Seymour has to do is not do anything. And Howard said, you know, one of the few times Howard took one of my ideas, because like, was, Howard was so smart. He said, I like that idea. I like that. Let's do it. And so we, we wrote the end of Act One, where basically the, the dentist laughs himself to death on nitrous oxide, and then Seymour just lets it happen. We also have created a dentist that was you know, much more hateful than the dentist in the movie. This, this dentist actually abuses and, and beats up Audrey. So we're, we're willing to have this happen. How did this go over at the New York Analgesic Society? Did your father get... Well, uh, my, <laughs> I always would give, give my parents a cassette tape of my shows. And, I, and as, in this case, I did what I always did. I sent them a cassette, and I came back to my apartment, and there was a message on the machine from my mother that went, uh, Hi, Alan. <laughs> it's Mom. We, we heard the show. <laughs> uh, okay. Click. <laughs> and, you know, normally it's, Oh, honey, it's so beautiful. You're so – it's wonderful. It's just great. So – you know, I said, oh, something's wrong. And Janice, Janice said, no, your mother's just so moved. I said, I don't know. So I called mom. Yes, honey. I said, what do you think? Well, how would you feel if you had devoted your life to promoting the use of nitrous oxide as safe and your son just wrote a musical in which the character le- dies from... <laughs> I said, Oops. So I called Howard. I said, Howard, I, we've made a terrible mistake. We have to change this. He said... Not on your life. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> we love this. This is great. I said, oh, oh, no. So the show opened. It was a huge hit. And very shortly, my dad began providing us with the slides from his patients for the dentist's teeth. And be, he got it down to the, um, to the, you know, Einstein where he worked as uh, he taught. And they said, hey, Norm, how's our show doing? So the dentist pretty much embraced it. And, yeah, he gave my dad a... Nice little side image as a as a tough motorcycle guy, which he's <laughs> far from. And there was finally peace in the Mencken family. <laughs> oh, there's always been peace in the Mencken family. Well, a kind of a peace. <laughs> Let's not get into that. Well, <laughs> Little Shop was very successful. Ran for more than five years off-Broadway, eventually transferred years later to Broadway. Very successful. How did your collaboration with the Disney company begin? You did a number of films for them, but how did that get started? Um, I've often tried to piece that together because, you know, for me, for me it came from a call from Howard. I, after Little Shop, Howard um, was asked to just consult on this this musical called um, Smile. Uh, Carolyn Lee was writing the lyrics. I think they wanted Howard to write the book. There was a different director. 
and Marvin Hamish writing the the um, music, and Howard went in just to consult, but as often happens, especially with Howard, he consulted so well that everyone said, well, clearly you're the person who has to do this. And so Howard ended up writing that show. When Carolyn Lee passed away, Howard took over writing the lyrics as well and the direction. So he's wearing the same three hats he wore on Little Shop, a little more difficult on Broadway. At the same time, I was called by Tom Ian, who had just done uh, Dreamgirls, and I had met him there's so many stories to tell. We could go on for five hours. I had met him when I was I was doing a musical with Michael Bennett um, called uh, it's called Atina Evil Queen of the Galaxy, and um, we were very, bringing in everybody in New York to come and and meet with us about doing the show, which is going to be done at this, this, these tennis courts at the bottom of 890 Broadway. Michael had bought this building and became Theater 890. Obviously, what Tom ended up doing was Dreamgirls. I ended up unfortunately writing um, Atina Eve, Queen of the Galaxy, but it never saw the light of day. Tom Ion contacted me about doing a show called Kicks, the Showgirl Musical. And we spent years workshopping this show, which was an original story. It had a Dreamgirls kind of quality to it. It was about this group of women. It, it went from, from World, War, World War II all the way through the Vietnam War, and it traced what happens on 6th Avenue where that whole industry that where only Radio City remains as now an institution of what was a thriving commercial area of, of all these theaters that would show movies and have these stage shows. We worked on that musical. Howard worked on Smile, and we were therefore not working together. So when Howard came to me and said, "Do you want to, would you like to work on a Disney animated feature, that was my invitation in. What I believe happened was on Little Shop of Horrors, we had... Three, producers, three sets of producers. We had the Schubert's in New York, Cameron McIntosh in London, and David Geffen in, in Los Angeles. And they had also worked together similarly on Cats. So I believe David Geffen probably went to, must have been Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was under um, Michael Eisner at, at the new regime kind of at Disney, and they were looking to revitalize animation. By the way, parenthetically, Peter Schneider, who ran animation, had been our company manager on Little Shop for a while, working for Albert Poland. So it was a very small world we were in there. And I think they said, who, who, who's somebody who understands how to, you know, how to work with musicals on film? And so I think David Geffen said, you should meet this guy, Howard Ashman. And again, from what I understand, Howard went in and was, was approached about three projects. One was the Tina Turner autobiography, I, Tina, which he did not do, but that became What's Love Got to Do With It, a live-action remake of Thief of Baghdad, which I believe found its way into a lot of what we did on Aladdin and The Little Mermaid. And much to their surprise, he said, I want to do The Little Mermaid. And um, then shortly after that, I met John Musker and Ron Clements at Howard's apartment, and we began working on this. How conscious in those years at Disney was it to say we're taking the model of the classic Broadway musical or the classic movie musical? Because certainly once Beauty and the Beast came out, people often talk about Frank Rich's review where he yeah. said the best Broadway musical now is – I don't think anybody, including Howard and me, had the chutzpah to think we were going to bring the Broadway musical over to animation. I think what we you know, what we wanted to do – was create an animated musical that could simply sit on the shelf alongside. This, is, this was no small ambition. Um, an animated musical that would sit on the shelf alongside uh, Snow White and Cinderella and Pinocchio and Peter Pan and and Sleeping Beauty and Dumbo. That was a huge assignment we were giving ourselves. And 
we knew that songs would be an intrinsic part of it. And certainly we were going to make these songs much more dramatically connected as, as in musical theater than had been done up to that point where they had basically interpolated songs from pop writers for years before that. But I don't think we ever envisioned an actual transition from there to the stage. I will say with, with Beauty and the Beast... You know, Mermaid already he sort of blindsided us. We thought we'd have a, a nice, sweet... We were doing an assignment, and we'd probably have a nice, sweet animated musical, and we'd probably move on to doing more things on the stage. Although, understand that unbeknownst to me, Howard had a, his own ticking clock going on at that time that I didn't know about. I mean, we all knew the AIDS crisis was happening, and we were losing people right and left. For some reason, I, and seemingly a lot of people who knew Howard just had blinders on when it came to it, couldn't be Howard, wouldn't be Howard. Howard told us he was fine, and we believed he was fine, but he was having all these symptoms, you know, um, which I won't go into, but he gave other explanations to them, and everyone believed it because he wanted to believe it. <sighs> when we were working on Beauty and the Beast, we upped the ante and um, began writing these numbers like Be Our Guest and, and Bell, and we hadn't sent them on to Disney yet. And um, Howard was reluctant to send them on. He said, they're just going to laugh at us. I mean, this is not, believe me, this is not what they have in mind. They don't want a six-minute opening number that has Bell waking up at her cottage and walking through the town, and, every, and we're finding about the, out about the town and finding out about her, and then she's conversing with them, and they were... She's telling us her hopes and dreams, and they were meeting Gaston and having counterpoints. He said, they're going to laugh at us. And he was emotionally pretty much on edge at that time. Um, I remember, remember sessions where we'd be working on a song, and he would get so frustrated, he took a Walkman Pro. I don't know if you remember. Mm-hmm. These, these were the prime items. They were like $400 tape recorders, and he smashed it against the wall. And I said, I... I, I, I you know, my music writing can't be that frustrating to anybody. <laughs> I didn't, you know, know what was going on. So it was very fraught when we sent on the Beauty and the Beast material to Disney. And um, very quickly we got back this, in, this enthusiasm that was just through the roof in terms of where we were going. And as I said, we were somewhat blindsided by the success of Mermaid. It, it really tapped into something that we didn't, I don't think we fully knew it was going to tap into at all. Well, kind of a chicken and egg uh, sort of a question. Disney movies are all storyboarded in advance so that the animators know where they're going. And, of course, there's a, there's a book. Where did you come into the process? Did any of that exist when you were writing your material? Um, well, they had their own storyboards. But as I said early on, the first thing I, I did, and I'm sure Howard had had a couple of meetings prior to that, is I came in to Howard's apartment in New York, and John Musker and Ron Clements were there. And we talked, I think we read through their script, and then looked at some of the drawings they had. But you can bet Howard was, you know, then it all was, you know, let's now reorganize this. And remember, Howard was not only the lyricist on that. Howard was the executive producer of The Little Mermaid. He was, he was brought in to, to really guide the entire creative process. Uh, and, same, and the same thing with, with Beauty and the Beast. So, yeah, we would, we would then conceive the numbers, conceive what they would do, <clears throat> and work through the storyboards and 
and where the number would go and what we needed to incorporate into the songs and or how they needed to adjust. I mean, for instance, uh, adjust their work. One of the major changes was when John and Ron came to us, Sebastian was a stuffy English crab. And once we got our had our structure set, Sebastian was a, a Caribbean crab, which gave us a whole other color and a whole other contemporary edge to the score. And how about Beauty and the Beast? Beauty and the Beast, the whole idea of these objects coming to life, um, how common household objects coming to life, was something that we conceived. And that was, um, initially we started Beauty and the Beast with a, another director at Disney who actually came from his own animation company. It was a, an unsuccessful marriage. And then it, it went back into being an in-house process, again with Howard as executive producer, and Kirk Wise and Gary Trousdale became, began directing it. But with Beauty and the Beast, we only got partway in when Howard became very ill. Um, he made it through the entire songwriting process of Beauty and the Beast, but increasingly it was difficult for him to control. First of all, he, after a while he couldn't travel. And then he contracted a, a, a cold from the producer, and it uh, became one of those normal laryngitis attacks. But in his case, um, he never again in his life regained his voice. It became this neuropathy. And um, so there, there went our demos. And you know, we, up till then, we had always demoed our songs. And some, we also have, were working on Aladdin at the same time. In fact, Aladdin was actually supposed to precede um, Beauty and the Beast. And then because of our approach, it went back into a development and then came back later with Howard when he passed away, Howard felt that we had completed the score. It turns out, unbeknownst to either of us, there had been this day called Black Friday where a decision was made to cut the, the mother in Aladdin and cut the sidekicks, and so a whole bunch of songs hit the floor. Um, I think the feeling was Howard was now too ill to write anymore. So the, the new so only new song that remained was Prince Ali. We had already written uh, Arabian Nights and um, Friend Like Me, and that's when... I started my collaboration with Tim Rice to complete that project. You know, in the case of Beauty and the Beast, Howard passed away being not knowing how it was going to turn out, um, not knowing if we could follow through with this concept of making it as theatrical as we made it, and he never saw the film. Then, of course, the Beauty and the Beast, the same uh, situation that you had with Little Mermaid, you had to add additional material for the Broadway version. Yes, which that was... Years later. Quite years yeah, later, yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, and so, I, uh, yes, Tim Rice, in both cases, was the person I worked with to expand those. Um, and Tim was great. Tim was so respectful of, of Howard's and my work together and, ha- and Howard's style to the point where the way we would write the songs is I would sit down and, and write an entire song, music and lyrics, one jump ahead. I wrote as a, music and lyrics to that, and same thing with A Whole New World. Uh, and there was another song that never made it in um, called Why Me? And I would give him a dummy lyric, and he would permit that. Then he would wipe away my lyrics and put in something based on that model, but I would be getting in the rhythms of what I felt Howard and I would be doing. And so that's, I think, one reason it matched as well as it did. You mentioned writing with Tim Rice. You've written with Stephen Schwartz. You've written with David Zippel. You've written with a number of collaborators uh, now. Jack Aaron, so many. Is the process different with each collaborator? Subtly, they're different people. Process remains fairly consistent. For instance, I can never give a a really definite answer to the question, which comes first, musical lyrics? (laughs) 
always the assignment comes first. Well, indeed, certainly some of the people you've collaborated with, Lynn, although primarily now known as a lyricist. A book writer. Does, well, does, Lynn wrote the book. Is also a book writer, but also has written music herself. Stephen Schwartz, of course, writes yeah. music and lyrics. So I'm curious how you, how you balance right, that. And Lynn things. co-wrote the book to A Christmas Carol. And the, the, the composing part I have no problem with. I have a, <laughs> I have a big ego. I, I have no problem sitting in the room with anybody and doing what I do because um, I know I bring something um, unique and valuable to the to the to the collaboration as the composer, and I'm I don't feel threatened. Um, I'm I'm and I'm glad to get the input. I, I, I'm happy with the input. Um, Jack Feldman, who wrote Newsies, was also a composer, and I'm also a lyricist. I find those, frankly, those are great collaborations. I even think Tim has written some music. I think, yeah, he played me some songs he wrote music for. Everybody's a composer. <laughs> but it's always the assignment first. And then I like to be in the room with the person as much as possible. Let's conceive it in the room together. I'd rather have not have somebody go, here's a lyric, here's what I conceive you should do. Go write it. And vice versa. I hate to say, here's the music, write a, write a, a lyric. I'd like to be in the room and say, you know, I have this piece of music that I've been working on. How does this feel to you? And, oh, let's take the first half and let's... And they're thinking the lyric they're going to write. Could you shorten that phrase a little bit? I, I love that it's, it's, the, it's the back and forth in the room. To me, it's, you know, it's like some people like to go and play tennis. I like to get in the room and write a song. It's not that I don't like, also like playing tennis. It's just the best fun you can have um, is, is, create, is going in the room with nothing and coming out with something. In the little bit of time that we have left, I want to ask like about I'm eating it up. I've just been blabbing and blabbing. I'm sorry. I want to ask one pro- about one project that anyone who knows your career knows of, but it's it unfortunately was little seen. Um, what what was what happened with King David? Oh, King David. Why well, have King you David not first seen it? Yeah, it was conceived to be little seen, and that was basically only nine performances uh, to open the New Amsterdam Theater. It wasn't written for that, and that was probably I hate to say it maybe the worst way that show could have actually first been seen. I mean, of all things, to stick under the microscope of the New York critics, an oratorio, uh, albeit an unfinished one, <laughs> what, what hubris. I mean, and, and the critics had definitely got, got a hold of us, like, like my dog gets a hold of a, some sort of a, a toy that you just tear apart. King David, first of all, was designed for the Sultan's Pool in Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem 3000 Committee had had come to me through a man named Andre Jaoui about writing this um, or uh, a musical work on the life of King David to be done in Jerusalem. And this is during Rabin era. So it was, it was to be done exclusively for there. Make a long story short, Rabin was assassinated. Disney became involved. It became unworkable in Israel. We had this finished work. They had the New Amsterdam Theater. Michael Eisner um, was really enthused about us doing it there. I said, okay, Mike Ockrent came aboard to direct it, and we did it there. Subsequent to that, we've done reorchestration, restructuring. Um, it has been performed on, uh, to, in a limit, to, to a limited base, on a limited basis around the country. Sometimes, actually, um, born-again Christian groups do it. It's, it's interesting, the people who perform this work. It's really ambitious. It's really compelling, and it's difficult. Tim and I now are actually working on taking the first half of the story, the story of David and Saul, and we're about to embark on turning that into a stage musical, simply of that story. 
it's going to be no mean feat. It's going to take time. But he's actually uh, later uh, within within actually in February he's coming over and we'll be kicking off a process of working on that. I don't know how long it will take. It could take quite a while, especially given the rest of my schedule. But it is something that's alive and and we'd like to see happen. And on that same uh, same angle, talking about upcoming work, there are two others that uh, you've been been working on, which now I guess are about to happen: Leap of Faith and Sister Act. Can you give yeah. us a little idea what those are? Sister Act just, we just yeah, Sister Act. We we actually completed a first version of it was done at the Pasadena Playhouse about a year ago, and then at the Alliance Theater in um, Atlanta in January and February, and then um, we felt there was enough work that needed to be done, so we had to close down the production and go back to work on it. And we should say that the initial part company manager on Little Shop, okay. Peter is it, Schneider, is now directing well, and producing. Uh, more interesting, of course, the ex-president of, of, of Walt course. Disney Pictures is the director of, of – and, and is the person who came to me with Sister Act. Peter's directing it. And um, it's now slated to open in London next fall. And um, Leap of Faith – is a musical I've been working on for many years based on the movie Leap of Faith. The, the book is by the woman who wrote the, the movie, Janice Sircone. And Glenn Slater's written the lyrics and is um, co-writing, doing some, some book, uh, work on the book as well. Uh, and Taylor Hackford is directing it. Uh, Taylor Hackford, the film director who directed Ray and Officer, Officer and a Gentleman. gentleman and, uh, and Leap of Faith. No, he, he, he did not direct the film not originally? Leap of, yeah. uh, Idolmaker. Go back, and that was which is another one I was mm-hmm. interested in turning into a musical, uh, White Nights, which is where he met Helen Mirren, who he's married to. I mean, his his he's he's if you look at his list of films, La Bamba, he's a director who has made the greatest use of music, um, and he's making a stage debut with Leap of Faith. We're going to have a workshop this spring, and then a product. It will actually open on Broadway in the spring of '09. And then one thing we didn't mention, I guess, in the initial introduction, I just had this little film. Open. I don't know if anyone noticed that it. it was called Enchanted. Um, <laughs> and in Enchanted, you got the chance to send up some of the same material yeah. that you had created. Yeah, and it was it was it was it was coming out. It was another one of these projects that it was like five years back we, in development. I knew it was this great opportunity for Disney to return to musical because we were going to be um, basically t- taking this tongue-in-cheek approach to the Disney canon which would be, include my work, but also include work going back to the Walt era, where you go back to this animated world and uh, uh, hyper-romantic, hyper-innocent, when they sing their thoughts and their feelings. And, and our heroine is, has a spell put on her, and she's sent into the world where there's no happy ever afters, and she shows up as Amy Adams in Times Square, still singing her, her hopes and her dreams, but to a much more cynical, in a much more cynical context. And so we have a lot of fun with that, and gradually she becomes a three-dimensional woman in our world. Well, we should reiterate that uh, The Little Mermaid is currently running on Broadway at the Lundfontaine Theater, ironically in the same theater where Beauty and the Beast ran for more than 13 years, and that show had to close in order to make room for The Little Mermaid. And somebody pointed out it's also, also where Smile ran, when mm. Howard's musical that we talked about earlier. Well, interesting set of coincidences, circumstances. Love that theater. Alan, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. It was terrific. Thank you. Thanks, Alan. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you.
The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.